Welcome to the Vision Podcast, a podcast that explores news, topics, and information of interest to the faculty, staff, and friends of the Mississippi State University College of Arts and Sciences. I'm your host, Karen Brown. And I'm your host, John Burrow. Welcome to the Vision Podcast, a podcast that explores news, topics, and information of interest to the faculty, staff, and friends of Mississippi State University College of Arts and Sciences. Research continues here at Mississippi State despite challenges presented by the ongoing pandemic. So today we have a special research spotlight edition of the Vision Podcast. Today we are highlighting research in philosophy and science here at Mississippi State University. To help us, we are joined by Sam Kielhofer, intern on the Arts and Sciences Research Support Team, who will introduce our guests. Thanks, and I'm happy to join. We are also here with Department of Philosophy and Religion Professor Dr. John Bickle and his new postdoctorate researcher, Dr. Antonella Tramacheri. Dr. Bickle's research focuses on connecting various theories of mind, creativity, and human consciousness to specific neural mechanisms often down to the level of the expression and synthesis of specific genes and proteins in brain cells. Similarly, Dr. Tramachere's research focuses on gene heredity and the neural networks implicated in the origin of mental functions. For example, she has studied the development and mechanisms of the mirror neuron system, which activates both when an animal acts and when that animal sees the same action performed by another thus playing a crucial role in understanding, reacting to, and learning from others' actions and emotions. We are thrilled to have you all on this special edition of the Vision Podcast. Great. Uh, Thanks. We're really looking forward to talking to uh, to, to, to you all and uh, talking a little bit about this research. We're really excited about it. Yes, thanks so much for inviting us to this to, to your program. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you. Thank you. Yes, thanks so much for being here uh, today. We just want to discuss all of your exciting research and the implications your findings could have. Before we get there, I was hoping you could give us an overview of your research career and how each of you got to be interested in your line of work. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start with this. Uh, so, so, so. Back in the, my formative days, my, my undergraduate and graduate school days, I, I, was, I studied both philosophy and what was then called psychobiology, which has since then become more popularly known as neuroscience um, back at UCLA as an undergraduate. And I went on to graduate school at the University of California at Irvine. And, and you know, there were, I, I had other opportunities to go to graduate school, but I really, I, I, in retrospect, I made exactly the right choice. Irvine was world known for being a, one of the high, one of the center, a center for philosophy of science um, in, in, in his philosophy department, but it was also the home of some of the best neurobiology going on in the world at that time. It was the home of the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. I was able to spend a good deal of my graduate career working in Norm Weinberger's electrophysiology lab, studying at the level of single cells, changes to neural responses in rodent models and in cat models when various tone sequences were played to the animal. 
uh, but right across the hall was Gary Lynch's lab. Gary was ferreting out the mechanisms of a form of synaptic plasticity long as, known as long-term potentiation. Just across the hall was Jim McGaw's lab, who was working on the mechanisms by which stress molecules affect learning and memory. I mean, it was just one of the best places to be for neurobiology in the world at that time. And frankly, I, I, uh, I, I, I dithered. I mean, I was spent a lot of time wondering whether I should go on and get my PhD in neurobiology or get it in philosophy of science. I decided to go on and finish in philosophy of science, but the lab experience I got and the, and the graduate experience I got and the part of time I spent around the center was absolutely uh, influential in giving me this kind of cred credibility among scientists. And um, you know, so you know, four books later, nearly 100 articles later, uh, edited of the Oxford Handbook of Philosophy and Neuroscience. Uh, I authored the, uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's uh, Philosophy of, of Neuroscience uh, 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 article, the, you know, the, the, the entry. Um, and um, let me just make one more comment about this too, because fall 2000 was the year that I moved from where I got tenure at East Carolina University to the University of Cincinnati. I took over as externally hired department head of the philosophy department there, which also had a strong history in philosophy of science, but I also was appointed a faculty member in the neuroscience graduate program. And that's when I first came into contact with molecular neuroscientists and hanging around with them and seeing what they did was really eye-opening to me because I got this picture that what was being described in mainstream philosophy of science was simply not describing the actual practices of day-to-day -day lab science. And so at that very same time, this broader movement in philosophy of science was starting, which became known as the science and practice movement. So serendipitously, I was learning some of the very same lessons that some other philosophers of science were learning by this day-to-day -day activity with these wet lab molecular neuroscientists. And it was also at, when I was at Cincinnati that I started collaborating with Alcino Silva, a neurobiologist at UCLA, who was the instigate, who was a person who brought gene targeting techniques directly into neuroscience from developmental biology. And so that collaboration continues to the present day. We produced a book, a number of journal articles, and my recent work on tool development in neurobiology stems directly from collaborations with Silva. Absolutely fascinating, John and Boyer. We thrilled to have you at Mississippi State University. And right. who are you joined with in your work right now? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, my, my academic career uh, surely starts in Italy, where I come from. And uh, I began with studying the bio biological origin of behavior at Sapienza University in Rome. And there I received uh, the bachelor and master degree in philosophy of biology. And uh, back then I was already uh, very interested and fascinating in understanding how the brain works. So how do we perceive and see things the way we do? 
how, why our behavior is the way it is. And uh, uh, my fascination and interest for biology then brought me uh, to, to join uh, neuroscientists. So I got my PhD at the Department of Neuroscience in Parma, um, working with Pier Francesco Ferrari and Rizzolatti, who were, he is a famous neuroscientist because he discovered the mirror neurons. Um, and there I, I, I wanted to analyze what happens to our brain during social interactions. What happens when we perceive others' emotions, other behavior? How do we understand them? And uh, whether maybe we really understand others' emotions and other, others' mind. So I focused my attention on the functioning of the mirror neuron system, which was the discovery of, the great discovery of that decades and uh, of the Department of Neuroscience. And mirror neurons are, neurons that really attracted attention they they um they are active both when we perceive other actions and when we execute the same actions ourselves my my favorite example is smile when we smile we activate motor neurons that are associated with the smile uh, and when we perceive other people smiling we also activate those neurons. So it is like we smile a little bit ourselves under threshold. And I thought that by studying the mirror neuron system uh, in humans, we could understand the way perception and action work and interact together during both um, individual and social experiences. And then I've been hired as a postdoctoral researcher in uh, various scientific labs in Tokyo, in uh, Germany, uh, where I have joined neuroscientists and uh, uh, neurobiologists studying the brain and also uh, how the environment have an impact on the brain and our behavior. And the species that they were uh, mostly analyzed were monkeys and songbirds. And during those years, I really learned a lot on how various species, animal species communicate and uh, uh, how the brain is made and the similarities and differences with us. So I started to focus on what, so the differences, what made us different from other animals and what are the similarities with them. And uh, uh, my, my idea was that uh, uh, the key of our evolution, evolutionary success is that we evolved incredible social capacities. So we have an incredible developed mirror neuron system, but also sophisticated technological control that is crucial for the of our cultural and uh, mental capacities. So to conclude, it is back then that I realized that uh, the best way to address classical philosophical questions like uh, what is the origin of our knowledge? How do we get to know things, but also others? How do we understand other minds? To understand these things and to address this question, we have to focus on what scientists are discovering and what they are doing in the field of evolutionary biology and molecular biology and neuroscience. And this is why a cornerstone of my research became the analysis of the interaction between genes and learning between genes and environment in the brain. 
and uh, why these uh, these questions have become also the main questions that I addressed in my publication during the PhD and during my postdoctoral uh, studies. Well, it's really fascinating, and we and we again uh, we're so happy to have you both here uh, to talk about this. Uh, and Dr. Bickle, I want to ask uh, you know that your your work focuses on connecting the mind and the behaviors to molecular events in the mind. So for example, I read an article of yours in which you argue that findings from experiment tools like gene targeting techniques are more reliable than philosophical theory alone. What do you think are some of the advantages of incorporating hard sciences into traditionally theory-based fields such as philosophy? And is this the current state of the field? Oh, great question. Both, both great questions. So let me go back to my, you know, the, 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 my early days when I first got to the University of Cincinnati and started really interacting on a day-to-day basis with what was going on with these first-rate molecular neuroscientists. Um, and, 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 and that's where I first came up with this idea, a methodological idea, which I came to call meta-science. Um, and, and, and so the, the basic idea is that what we, if we really want to understand how science works and why it succeeds so spectacularly when it does and why it hits various roadblocks towards success, we really need to pay attention to the language that scientists use in their experimental publications, and we need to pay direct attention to the way they go about their day-to-day activities in the research lab. And for me, that's wet lab biology, because that's the area of science that I'm most interested in. Um, but, um, what, but, but, but what, what I think that evidential touchstone of what scientists say in the research publications and what they do in their day-to-day activity. I think that research touchstones, um, uh, that, 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 that data gives us an evidential touchstone on which to base our theoretical speculations. Um, now look, this requires real, real lab, you know, wet lab experience. You can't just acquire this, do meta-science well, by just reading some textbooks or even reading journal articles. You need to be in there in the lab, and in there in the lab as a participant, not in there as a lab as an, sort of an external sociological or anthropological observer of practices, but in there engaged in the practices and finding exactly why the practices are done as they are and how they're done. Because it seems, it always seemed to me, especially when I start interacting more and more with these, these, uh, these wet lab uh, molecular neuroscientists, it seemed to me that when you just have these theoretical speculations that are divorced from some kind of evidential touchstone, all that winds up being is just a kind of intuition mongering. And, you know, if you're clever enough to come up with some kind of thought experiment or some kind of intuition pump that gets people to agree with you, yeah, you get people that uh, that will read your publications. But, I mean, I mean, that just seems to me like a relatively fruitless kind of endeavor. And so when, when, you, when you key those speculative endeavors about how science works and why it works as well as it does and why it hits roadblocks at times, when you, when you tie those to a, 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 an evidential touchstone like what scientists say and do, 
It seems to me that you're pushing that, 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 those discussions forward in a way that mere specul theoretical speculation um, based on nothing but whether or not it sounds intuitively correct, this is not going, is not going to discover. Well, and speaking of that research, the two of you now plan to investigate the field of epigenetics, specifically neuroepigenetics. And I wonder if you could explain what this new field is and why its study is so crucial. Yeah, I, I think I can answer to this question because uh, I fall in love with neuroepigenetics since my, so the early days of my, of my research. And uh, to me, so, and I think also for John, epigenetics is one of the most exciting fields in contemporary neuroscience. Uh, epigenetics analyzes the way gene expressed in relation to the environment, the microenvironment, so the environment of the cells and the general environment where the organism lives. Um, and uh, so, Epigenetics analyzes how the interaction between genes and environment determines the behavior of the various cells that compose our body. Nearly all the cells contain the same genetic material, right? But the morphology and the function of any of the different cells are different because of the uh, interaction that the genes of that cells add with their environment. So the, the function and the morphology of the cells of the lung or the liver are different, even though they have the same genetic repertoire. And the brain is not an exception to these rules. Epigenetic analysis in the nervous system is in fact highlighting how the interaction between genes and environment so is responsible for the development of the brain in general, but also for the wiring of the neural circuitry responsible for learning and memory of each of us. So for, for us as a population and for us as individuals. So neuroepigenetics can help to understand the origin of our mental functions, but not only from the perspective of biology, also from the perspective of the environment that contributed to how we are and how we developed. Kind of what I'm hearing is epigenetics focuses on how the environment or another outside factor can affect the gene expression. And, and I also, to my understanding, it's not just for one animal or person, but over the course of, of an entire species. So is this correct? And what, what kind of research is typically done in such a field? Okay, so epigenetists, so scientists uh, working on epigenetics, normally study the impact of the environment on the brain, if we are talking about neuroepigenetics. So epigenetic studies in the brain study the impact of environment on specific brain regions and on the brain in general. And the environment can concern the environment that we all share. For example, because we all live on the same planet, we share similar atmospheric conditions. Uh, but also, some of us share similar geographic region, geographical regions. So those conditions also have an impact on how our genes are expressed. 
to move to move toward the more psychological aspect that are the aspect that John and I are interested in as human beings we all share caregiving experiences for example someone took care of us when we only were babies and this means that we are exposed to social interactions from the early uh, early period of our early phase of our lives we were exposed to vocal and manual gestures to facial exchanges based on emotional expression all these things have impact on the functioning and development of the brain and through the interactions between the inputs that these experiences constitute and our genes the genes that we inherited and we can investigate this impact so this interaction through epigenetics and this is for me one of the most exciting aspects of epigenetics it can highlight it can highlight how the experience that we have and impact on our brain and mental capacities uh, but also on our experiences as individuals let me let me let me jump in with uh example uh from epigenetics that we're both we've, we've both uh, we've both used this was an example that um that 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 that, that i developed and, uh, and 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 used in a 2018 with my former PhD student Aaron Costco back from the University back when we were at the University of Cincinnati. And it's some work that comes out of Canada, out of Michael Meany's and Mosey Surf's lab. Um, and this is this is well-known work. It has been it's been much discussed. Um, and basically uh, what it what it begins with is characteristic uh, maternal behavior in rodents. Rodents characteristically adopt uh, either a high or low amount of licking and grooming the mothers of their offspring and also adopt a particular kind of nursing style known as arch bat nursing to a greater or a lesser degree. And what has been noticed from these environmental influences is that these environmental influences have, have, uh, have an effect on offspring fear and stress response well into offspring adulthood, not just during the times, the six, the six or seven days postpartum when the mothers engage in this particular behavior. And of course, the question has always been, what is the mechanism of this? And it turns out the mechanism is not genetic because you can cross foster the 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 offspring of the high impact the high of the high impact mothers to the low impact mothers and you can cross foster the offspring of the low impact mothers to the high impact mothers and you will get the same effects in those offspring that you get from the mother from those mothers but from their genetic mothers so it's the maternal nursing behavior that is producing these effects that persist into adulthood. And what Meany and Zerf and their collaborators were able to do was to trace these effects directly down to specific kinds of methylation patterns in a, in a, in a glucocorticoid a gene for a glucocorticoid receptor in the hippocampus of these particular rodents. And they were able to trace out the effects of that epigenetic mechanism into the response in, to the glu to glucocorticoid release 
in the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal, the so-called HPA, the well-known stress axis and, and fear axis in mammals, stress axis in mammals. And then it's the epigenetic mechanisms that are driving these effects and they persist into adulthood because these, the, these epigenetic mechanisms are driving these effects at the level of gene expression. So Dr. Uh, Tramachere, you mentioned the uh, interaction you know, between the environment and the organism or the organism's, you know, mind. Um, and that seems where your study into mirror neurons really come into play with epigenetics. So could you sort of explain how those two fields of study interact and, and are coming to a head in your research here uh, with Dr. Bickle? Yes, sure. So when I arrived um, at the Department of Neuroscience in Parma, um, I learned that there was a debate on whether mirror neurons and the bigger network where they are embedded, that mirror neuron system, whether this system is learned or innate, whether mirror neurons are acquired during the lifespan, during development, or whether they are genetically inherited. And this was an important debate in psychology and cognitive science because mirror neurons are associated with empathy, the capacity to feel and understand others' emotions, and also with imitation. And the capacity of imitation has received uh, great attention in the last decades because uh, um, the capacity to imitate others is crucial in our species. If we are not able to reproduce others' actions, we can't learn to speak. We can't reproduce technologies. We can't reproduce artifacts that we learn from others. Thus, mirror neuron systems is regarded as a crucial system in the evolution of human intelligence and culture. And I wanted to contribute to this debate, and I did by introducing a third alternative to the innate acquired positions that were present there. And this alternative, this third position, is the epigenetic view of mirror neurons. This view, the epigenetic views of mirror neurons says that it does not make any sense to use the innate acquired distinction to understand the origin of mirror neurons or of this system. This is because every trait that we develop is the result of both genes and learning. So the epigenetic views invites to analyze how gene and learning make the human mirror neurons what it is, like it is, and uh, why it is more developed and sophisticated in humans than in other species. So the epigenetic lens invites to ask specific questions. Why genes and which genes and which environmental factors participate to the development of the mirror neuron system in humans and in other species? And what, what are the differences that do exist in these genes that contribute to the mirror neuron system in humans compared to the other species? And so my contribution uh, was twofold. On the one hand, I criticized the way all conceptual distinctions innate, acquired, uh, have been made. I proposed that uh, uh, and motivated also with uh, examples and uh, by analyzing uh, timely research 
from scientists that this whole distinction is not only useless, but it's also um, uh, misleading. Uh, and second, I invite cognitive psychologists to look at the result of gene environmental interactions to reformulate the question on the evolutionary and developmental origin of specific behaviors and specific psychological functions. When, when, when she applied for my postdoc, she, in her writing sample, she mentioned this, um, this, this approach she had of using epigenetics to, uh, to, 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 to basically explain the development and the origins of the motor neuron system. And I was fascinated by that particular, that particular, that particular idea in, in this paper of hers. I mean, and of course, in our, in our interview, I followed up. I wanted to hear more about that because I've always been a bit of a mild critic of the mirror of, of some of some work in mirror neurons um i was there with my wife marisha bernstein in in in, in tucson when rizzolati the italian uh, the italian physiologist gave one of his early big lectures on the mirror neuron system um and but one of the things that always bothered me about mirror the work on mirror neurons was that for about every 100 publications on mirror neurons that was speculating about its evolutionary significance there was only about 10 publications on mirror neurons by serious neurophysiologists and that just kind of always worried me about mirror neurons but when antonello came and said you know i've got this perspective on mirror neurons that 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 that, that shed some real light on how such a system would develop based on epigenetic mechanisms i thought wow this is a real breakthrough in the in the in 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 the in the in the scientific justification of the importance of the mirror neuron system uh, Dr. Pickle, I want to ask, you know, during Dr. Tremacheri's uh, postdoctorate uh, time here, what research projects do you have planned? Sure. Well, one of them we've already we've already gotten off the ground. Um, so I give I give this I, I run this uh, philosophy and neuroscience workshop at the Gulf Workshop um, every year, uh, which in which which brings in generally about twenty or so speakers to give uh, presentations on some area of philosophy and neuroscience. And since I knew that Antonella was going to come work with me as a postdoc. For this year's, for this this for autumn's workshop, uh, she came on as co-organizer, and uh, of course, with COVID, we had to go to an all online uh, workshop. But it still worked out great. We had four keynote speakers, um, two scientists, two uh, two philosophers. We had, I believe, something like eighteen abstracts that we accepted for, for presentation. So we had two and a half days a full Friday, a full Saturday, and most of the day on Sunday, where we had people discussing these particular issues. And one of the themes of this year's workshop was neuroepigenetics. One of the things we plan to do to follow up on that hugely successful workshop is to uh, have a, the proceedings, especially the proceedings that have to do with epigenetics, 
published in a, a, in a special issue of a journal, particularly one of the most influential interdisciplinary journals between philosophy and the life sciences. We're, uh, we'll, be, we'll be working with the presenters and we'll be working with the editor of the journal that we choose to, uh, to publish this with to get the, the probably what will be the first publication you know, sustained publication on philosophy and neuroepigenetics uh, out to a professional audience. Yeah, so John and I are also collaborating on a poster which will be presented uh, at the Philosophy of Science Association next spring uh, and on a paper. And uh, the content of the poster mostly recapitulates that of the paper. We have chosen two examples from uh, neuroepigenetic research. One regards the transmission across generation of early life traumatic experiences, and the other, the way trauma traumatic remote memories are more resistant to change than recent memories. And through these examples that we analyzed uh, uh, from scientific publication, we are going to show the novelty that epigenetic brings to scientific explanation. So the epigenetic experiments with animal models explain how ch ch changes in gene expression are driven by environmental inputs producing transient or long-lasting modifications. And we think that this kind of explanation brings something new to the classical philosophical conception of explanations uh, that we find in current uh, uh, theories. And these this novelties regard the role of the environment, uh, because epigenetic explanation includes environmental inputs as relevant factors in the discovery of causal pathways that lead to change in, changes in behavior. And these environmental inputs are difficult to conceive of within the current popular mechanistic accounts of scientific explanation. Because in these accounts, uh, the role of the environment either is disregarded or considered as background contextual condition. And the other novelty regards the role of time. Uh, epigenetic explanation are very often developmental explanations. They consider how components or organisms, organization at the late, at the earlier stage are um, in influence and affect the realization of mechanisms at the later stage. And uh, the fact that there is this role of time that is a crucial aspect in how we are uh, made in the perspective of the brain and in our behavior is also something that is disregarded, disregarded in current uh, uh, philosophical account of mechanisms. And we want to bring this exciting aspect of epigenetics to the attentions of philosophers working uh, on the mind that are out there. I think the most important aspect of neuroepigenetics is that uh, we have now the tools to understand the impacts of past experiences, also trauma and adversive experiences, not only on our brain and behavior, but also on our genes. 
So social sciences and psychology uh, always emphasized how we are the product of our past. But now through epigenetics, we know we can understand how we carried on this past in ourselves, how to sometimes transmit this past to our children, also the effect of trauma and adversive experiences. So finally, also hard science can treat individuals as historical beings and not simply as instantaneous beings in the present. So for us, analyzing the scientific practices in the field of epigenetics, can I highlight the potential of this field? And uh, we can extrapolate the conceptual implications of this research for understanding the might, but also for therapeutic interventions. And of course, it is not our task to find these interventions because we are not epigenetists, but as philosophers, it is important to consider what scientists there are doing with epigenetics. And uh, why we want to look at what scientists do? Because the goal is expanding that synoptic vision, to use a phrase from a famous philosopher, Wilfred Sellers. We want to see what the emerging picture from the actual scientific discoveries might look like if we project it into further into the future. How do our conception of who we are as human beings and our potentialities change as we learn more about our biology and our brain? As, as fascinating as people like Antonella and I find this, um, this, 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 this approach, which has come to be called empirical philosophy, this interdisciplinary, even transdisciplinary approach to this you know, this old discipline of philosophy, it's still important for us to realize and to point out that we're in the, minor the minority in this particular field. Um, and we're, our hope is that by continuing to bring this, um, this really, really exciting scientific research to broader philosophical reflection, we will convince more of our colleagues in philosophy that reflecting on these actual scientific discoveries is where the action is, particularly in the early 21st century for this discipline of philosophy. Um, I've said in print that one of the really fascinating, uh, one of the really fascinating uh, uh, features of doing philosophy of neuroscience is that you literally do not know what new discovery is gonna come around the bend next week. And it's got, and, and it, that, that leads to a kind of intellectual excitement that I think can be missing from a lot of traditional philosophy. And epigenetic, neuroepigenetics is one of the latest of these new discoveries to come around the bend that's just rift for philosophical reflection. Dr. Bickle and Dr. Tramachere, thank you so much for being here on the Vision Podcast. It has been a pleasure working with you and learning about your work. And also, too, excited to have this research in the headlines episode, special episode of the podcast. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, if you're interested in exploring a topic of interest to you and the broader community and or have questions you would like us to address in a future podcast, email me, Karen Brown at kbrown at dnas.msstate.edu and we look forward to hearing from you.
We also have a dedicated section on the Arts and Sciences website for our podcast show scripts. From our homepage, simply click on the media tab and scroll down to see Vision Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We are glad that you joined us for this edition of the Vision Podcast. Be sure to visit our website, www.cas.msstate.edu, for more information about the College of Arts and Sciences. Please be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We'd appreciate you helping us spread the word letting others know about the podcast. You can also stay up to date on news and information about the College of Arts and Sciences by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mississippi State University College of Arts and Sciences, learning through discovery.